Good morning again. Uh, my name is Derek. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Welcome to Hope. We're really thankful you're here. We, um, we, we really strive to be a church that uh, glorifies God, where we can connect people to God, that, uh, that encourages community, so we want to connect people to each other as well, and that also celebrates God's mission, so that we want to connect people to their neighbors. So those are kind of our, our three main goals. If you want to hear more about that, uh, I would love to sit down over lunch or a cup of coffee, and we can talk about that more. So we are kind of in a bit of a transition uh, time right now. We're going to start a new sermon series next week on the book of Ruth, which should be a lot of fun. So you can start reading up on Ruth now and, and come ready next week to study Ruth. But today, we're going to talk about something that's actually oftentimes kind of forgotten a little bit in the church, and that's Jesus' ascension. So Jesus, of course, was crucified, died, was buried, we say in the creed, he was risen to new life, and oftentimes we kind of just stop on Easter and we think we're done. But there's a very important passage in Acts chapter 1 about Jesus' ascension to his throne. So that's what we're going to look at today. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to, uh, to Acts. Uh, real quick kind of background, the book of Acts is actually like Luke part 2. So Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts, You'll hear me even when I read this, he wrote this as a letter to a friend, a guy named Theophilus, telling him about who Jesus was, all that he had done, and what continued then in the young church. So listen to me as, uh, listen now as I read Luke's description of, of, of Jesus' ascension here and, and, and the wonderful mission then that he gives the disciples. Here's Acts chapter 1, I'm going to read 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, the gift which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. Now give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Soften our hearts, Lord, that we may receive your word with humility. That we may know you more deeply and knowing you may love you more fully, and in loving you, may follow you more closely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, if you know some of your history, space history, you know, you know that the, the Apollo missions uh, in the late 60s were the missions that were building toward getting a man on the moon. And Apollo 1 you know, ended really in tragedy. Before it had even taken off, ended in, in, in fiery tragedy there, kind of on the ground. And three astronauts were killed. And so by the time we actually got to Apollo 11, the, the mission that actually finally made it to the moon, uh, nobody really knew what was going to happen because uh, it was a dangerous mission. In fact, I just read the other day that, that, that President Nixon had had, uh, he, he actually had a speech already written, kind of a consolation speech. If something terrible happens on the moon, they, all had, they had plans in place of how they were going to stop the television coverage, how they were actually going to bring a minister in to pray, and he was going to read a speech about the tragedy of the moon landing. Of course, that's not what happened, right? We actually did land on the moon, uh, touched down on this incredible surface, and then ended up coming back. So this journey from Earth to the moon, the first time a human being had ever been on any sort of other structure outside of the Earth, and then actually made it all the way back, and we got to welcome them and throw them a big party and a big parade. It was a celebration because this incredible mission had been fulfilled. Uh, they, they were back from their mission, and so we celebrated them doing this wonderful and amazing thing. Why do we celebrate the ascension? Well, it's the same reason, is that there is a mission that has been completed, is that Jesus has done something incredible. He has left his throne above. He has descended to take on human form, to take on our flesh. Paul says to humble himself, even taking on the form of a servant, to then take on our sin and be crucified for that sin, to raise to new life, and now he is headed back to his home to complete his earthly mission. So the ascension is in many ways the greatest travel event of all time. It is the greatest completed mission of all time. We celebrate the ascension because we are celebrating that Jesus is finished. Now, let's just dig in here to, to, this, to this text a little bit and figure out what's going on. So the first kind of question we're going to deal with here is what, what actually happened? What happened in the ascension? So if you've got a Bible open with you, you can look at it again, and let's just kind of go through the facts. What are the facts of the case? Well, Luke opens up and he tells us that Jesus, of course, has been crucified, he has risen, and that he's actually been around for a little while. I don't know if maybe that surprised you a little bit, but Jesus has risen, and he has stayed risen for 40 days, Luke says. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that he, that he interacted with more than 500 people. So Jesus, after the resurrection, is not hiding. He is not cagey. He's not trying to make himself scarce. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's, he's meeting people. People are seeing him. So people are witness to his resurrection broadly. And then as Jesus is, is with his disciples, and probably right about the time they're getting really comfortable with Jesus being back, could you imagine how mind-blowing that would have been? for that first month to think, this is the guy I saw die, and here he is alive. And probably right about the time they were starting to get used to that, Jesus actually says, okay, I'm actually leaving again. And he ascends in a cloud, and then two guys in white robes show up, and they say, he's gone, but he's going to come back someday. What in the world is going on there? Well, let, let, let's start with this cloud business. Is it a fog? Is it maybe just a dense fog? 
came over here and Jesus was able to sneak away because there was such a big fog? No, I don't think so. And I don't think so actually because there's a lot of background to what's happening here. Now, I want you to just, just kind of put on your, your biblical scholar hat here for just a minute, okay? Even if you're not a biblical scholar, you can put on the hat. It's okay. And we're going to travel back into the Old Testament and remember back in the book of Exodus. So Exodus recounts God removing his people from slavery in Egypt. And then after he takes them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, he brings them into the wilderness of Sinai, and he meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. And I don't know if you remember what happened in Exodus 19, as Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, God says, tell everybody else to stay away. You come up and meet me. And then a cloud actually descends on the mountain. And the Lord speaks to Moses there, kind of in the midst of that cloud. We get the same occurrence in Exodus 34. Because what happens between Exodus 19 and Exodus 34 is Moses comes down the mountain. He sees that the rest of Israel has, has thrown an idol party. And in his anger, he breaks you know, the tablets that God gave him. And everything kind of seems like it's all falling apart. But God, in his mercy and grace, lets Moses come back up. He meets with him again in Exodus 34. Same kind of event. And God descends in a cloud. In fact, something really interesting, uh, Moses asked the Lord, he says, will you show me your glory? And God descends in this cloud that has something to do with his glory. And then as we get actually to the end of Exodus, here's what we read in Exodus 40. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen as I read. This is the very end of the book of Exodus. It's talking about the tabernacle. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel through all their journeys. So the cloud there represents all through uh, Exodus, God's glory, his presence in glory there over the tabernacle. Okay, now fast forward back to the gospel of Luke. Remember Acts is Luke part two. We'll go to Luke part one. And there in a very interesting passage in Luke chapter nine that we oftentimes call the transfiguration, Jesus takes a few of his disciples. They go up a mountain again and there actually uh, on this mountain, guess what happens? A cloud comes down and the cloud actually starts speaking. And then two guys appear, Moses and Elijah. Remember, Moses is the guy who God met in a cloud in Exodus. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet uh, known not only for his great prophetic work, but also for the fact that he actually never died. He was taken up alive into heaven by, by a chariot of fire. He actually met God's glory. In fact, the words used in the Bible are very similar to Acts 1. He was taken up into heaven. So here's Jesus with two guys up on the top of a mountain in a cloud. And, uh, and, and the Bible tells us, Luke tells us that, that their appearance was like sparkling white. It was, it was radiant. A lot like Moses' appearance when he came down from Mount Sinai and his face was glowing, he was radiant, he was like sparkling. It was like he was completely white. Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah looked very similar. 
Fast forward to Luke 24, the account of Jesus' resurrection. The women come to the tomb, and they actually don't find the tomb empty like we oftentimes think. They find Jesus not there, but there's actually two men in the tomb. And Luke tells us they are wearing sparkling white robes. Fast forward to Acts chapter 1. A cloud comes down, and then two men appear as Jesus ascends, and they are wearing, Luke tells us, sparkling white robes. Now, this is a complete, this is my opinion, okay? Let me just be very clear. Because the Bible does not tell us who these men are. But it doesn't seem like a really huge stretch to think maybe it's Moses and Elijah. Wouldn't that be cool? I guess going to be on the list of things, questions I want to ask when I get to heaven, right? Was that y'all? It kind of seemed like it was (laughs) y'all. But look at what's tying all of these things together. See all the imagery that's coming together here in Acts chapter 1? A cloud, the sparkling, beautiful white robes, two men, this incredible scene of glory. That's the thing that's connecting all of these things together. It's God's glory. Jesus is being glorified here. Glory is a word throughout the Bible that is used for a few different things. It talks about light, brightness, kind of white shining, But mostly when we talk about glory, especially when we talk about glory with God, it is talking about his majesty, his worth, his kingship. The glory of God is so deeply connected with the apartness of God, right? The holiness of God. It is about God only. And Jesus here, as he ascends, is actually being glorified. Or to think about it another way, He is taking back up. He is being reinstated to the place and the position that is rightfully his. He has come down from his throne, and he is going back to his throne. Now, if that that all was too much in the weeds for you, maybe this one will make a little more sense. The Lion King is the same story. If you've seen The Lion King, you've seen this story, actually. At the very beginning, remember Simba, the little lion? He's born, he's the heir apparent, and the baboon, who's kind of like the prophet, you know, in the book, he kind of makes this sign on Simba, holds him up in front of everybody. He proclaims, this is the king to come. This is the king that will, that will finally kind of take his rightful place. Of course, the whole of the story is about Simba's exile and then coming back, right? He finally has to battle his evil uncle Scar, And in doing so, he finally takes his rightful place back. But there's this really interesting scene at the end of the movie where where that baboon, Rafiki, kind of once once he's already kind of had this battle, it seems like everything, you know, is is done. And Rafiki kind of points to to Pride Rock. Pride Rock is the rock that looks out kind of over all of, of Simba's kingdom. And he basically says, no, no, you need to actually take your seat on the throne up there. And Simba goes up there and he stands out in front of everyone and he roars and they all bow down. And they, they, they proclaim his glory, his majesty, his worth. That is what Jesus is doing here in the ascension. He is being rein, he's being reinstated to his rightful and proper place as king. So why does all of that matter for us? Why does the ascension matter for us? Just a few quick things. First of all, is that God's glory is more than just about God's glory. God's glory is also deeply about God's grace and mercy. Listen, 
to how, what we hear from John chapter 1. This is what John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. I don't know if John is talking about the transfiguration. He was there. Or maybe he's talking about the ascension. He was there also. Or maybe he's just talking about being with Jesus. We have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he continues. He says this. Uh, he said, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace and upon grace. Deeply connected to Jesus' glory, John says, is grace. He says it three times in this passage, that Jesus is full of grace and that he gives us grace upon grace. And actually, even if we go back to Exodus, remember when Moses says, please show me your glory, God comes and he, he hides Moses in this rock so that he won't be destroyed. And this is what he proclaims. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. The first words out of the Lord's mouth when Moses asked to see his glory are mercy and grace. If you've been reading through Gentle and Lonely lowly in, your, uh, in your small groups, in your community groups, maybe you remember some of this. Listen, listen what Dan Ortland, the writer of that book, says. When we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of who God is, what he's like, his distinctive resplendence, what makes God God. And when God himself sets the terms on what his glory is, he surprises us into wonder. Our deepest instincts expect him to be thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-releasing. We expect the bent of God's heart to be retribution to our waywardness. And when, when Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks, we see that the bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. His glory is his lowliness. So that's the first thing we need to understand. When we are celebrating God's glory, we are also celebrating his mercy and his grace. Second thing is that God's glory is also about gift-giving. This is what Jesus actually tells his disciples in John chapter 16. Listen to this. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus actually there is talking about his ascension. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is telling his disciples, and he says this again in Acts chapter 1, Stay here in Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the Spirit. Wait for the gift that you're going to receive. Jesus is giving this gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. In ancient times, a king, a king's majesty and glory, his goodness oftentimes would be shown in the quality of his gift giving. A king, after, after being victorious in battle would kind of come in on a parade, oftentimes with the prisoners in the back of the parade, and he would come in and he would start giving gifts away to his people. And so it showed actually the king's goodness. It showed actually the wonder of the king. It showed his high status that he would be giving away gifts to his people. And God says that Jesus, our king, has given the most perfect gift that he could ever give, his own spirit. We will see this actually happen just a chapter later in Acts in the day of Pentecost. But the Bible says that God's people, whenever we place our trust in Christ, 
that his spirit actually resides in us, that Jesus himself is with us, that he is not only with us individually, but that he is among us when we are gathered. What greater gift could he ever give us than himself, the power of his own spirit? Jesus is a gift giver, and his glory is about gift giving. And here's the third piece about why the ascension matters for us and why his glory matters is because Jesus' glory is also a glory that we will share. God's glory is actually about our glory too. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. This is what the Apostle Paul says. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You hear that promise? We will also be glorified. We will be glorified like Jesus is glorified. Jesus not only was reinstated to his proper and appropriate place on his throne, but friends, you and I will be reinstated to our proper and appropriate place as well. Psalm 8 says that mankind was crowned with glory and honor. We were created in the image of God. We were created with glory and honor. And though it is broken by sin and we live with that daily, there will be a time when we also will be glorified, when we will be like Jesus in some incredible way that I can't even get my head around. And the ascension is the promise, the placeholder for that wonderful promise. If you've ever purchased a house, you know what earnest money is, right? You find the great house. It's going to be the perfect family house for you forever. You love it. You fall in love. And so you've decided to give the sellers a contract and an offer. And you write in that contract all kinds of details like, here's the price we're willing to pay. And we will close in 30 days. But to make sure that you know that we're serious, here is a certain bit of money, earnest money, that we're going to give you right now that's going to make sure you know that we're going to keep our promise. Here's a little piece of the final amount that you get to have now so that you know that we're serious about fulfilling our promise later. That's the ascension for us, friends. It is the earnest money on God's promise that we too will be glorified. All right, if that's the promise, what do we do in the meantime? What are we to do while we wait for Jesus' return? Well, I love actually the way that it's played out in this passage. There's some great irony here in the, in the discussion between Jesus and his disciples. I want you to just pay attention to this one more time. Uh, verse 4 says this, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. He said, You heard it from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in not many days. So when they had come together, they asked him a question. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The disciples still think Jesus, after all of this time, after all of his teaching, after all that he has done, they still think he's going to overthrow the Romans. They think that's his main job. They have still sold him way short. A guy that told them what he would do and then did it. A guy that died and then raised to new life. You could think they might have bigger plans in mind than just getting the Romans out of their hometowns. But of course, you know, they say something stupid, which, by the way, let's not get arrogant about it. If we were in that same position, we would have said the same stupid stuff. 
But I love how Jesus actually handles this. He says two things. He says, first of all, it's not yours to know the times and the seasons. That's not your playground to play in. That's not your sandbox. Stay out of that. It's not yours to know. But in the same time, he says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes. So here's Jesus saying, that's not your place to know, but God is actually going to do something. This is a great way for us to actually understand how revelation happens. How does God deal with his people? And we've got actually a little uh, graphic here that I think is helpful. So look at this. This is a line that one of my seminary professors would draw for us all the time. It just got to the point where he just draw the line and we knew what he was talking about. So above the line is God's domain. That's what God knows. His sovereignty, his understanding, his infinite characteristics, right? And above the line, I mean below the line, that's us. That's the area we get to play around in. That's, that's our pay grade is below the line. So we don't get to play above the line. Jesus is telling them, listen, the times and the seasons, that's not for you to deal with. You're actually working kind of outside of your depth right now. That's not your place to figure out. What's below the line, we actually get to deal with, what is revealed to us. But look how beautiful this is. This is how great God is, is that God reveals himself to us. He doesn't leave us just kind of stranded. And this is the way that we get what we know, is that we get from God what he wants to give to us. Again, this is one of the unique things about Christianity. God did not just say, hey, I'm unknowable. Y'all just get it figured out. Or maybe I'm unknowable. you got to come search and find me, and we'll see if you can do it. No. God says, here is exactly what you need to know, and I'm going to give it to you because I'm gracious and merciful and loving. And so we see this beautiful tension happening here, is that Jesus at the same time says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. However, I am at work, and I'm going to do something, and you will see that happen. And, of course, they see it in just a couple of days later. That's the beautiful place we live in, is that tension of dealing with what Jesus has given us to do, resisting the urge and the temptation to play above the line, and faithfully dealing with what he has given us below the line. So what's that thing he's given us? He actually tells his disciples right here. He says in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says the job that we have is to bear witness, to bear witness to what we have seen. He tells his disciples, you have just experienced the most amazing thing that has ever happened in the face of the planet. You have just experienced the greatest event of all time. So bear witness to that event. Friends, that simply means that we live our lives as if all of this mattered. We live our lives as if Jesus' death on our behalf matters, as if his resurrection to new life matters, as if his ascension to his throne matters. And we bear witness of those things. We actually see, fast forward in chapter 2 of Acts, and we see uh, the young disciples, the young Christians, we see them actually doing this. And guess what they're doing? They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They're devoting themselves to prayer. They're devoting themselves to fellowship. They're devoting themselves to worship together. It is normal stuff. It's not radical stuff. It's normal, normal stuff done in a radical way. And that's what bearing witness looks like in our lives. 
Now let me just, just close with this briefly. I, I love, I love the, how he lays out these kind of concentric circles. Uh, he tells his disciples, here's how you're going to bear witness. Here's, here's what it looks like. Start, start with the people around you. Start with your neighbors and your friends. Start here where you are in Jerusalem. Then move out, you know, and you'll see actually the Holy Spirit moving out to Judea. That's the region. And then into Samaria, that's actually the region that was kind of next door that they hated. And then he, he includes to, to the ends of the earth, to the furthest places that you even know exist. This is actually uh, 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 hugely encouraging for us. You know why? Because guess what we are? We're the ends of the earth. <laughs> Friends, we are sitting in New Braunfels, Texas, an ocean away, and 2,000 years later, and we are talking about Jesus' ascension. The Holy Spirit has worked. That has gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and it has gone all the way to the ends of the earth so much that it's actually reached us. Hallelujah. If you are wondering, will God be with me as I bear witness to my neighbor? Will God be with me as I work faithfully in the vocation that he has called me to? Will God be with me even in this awkward conversation I'm about to have with a friend or with a Mormon who just showed up at my door? Will God be with me? Friends, take heart. He has already shown that he is. Let's thank him for his wonderful work and ask him to continue to empower us in this mission that he's given us. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your ascension. That there is, uh, as my friend Garrett Dawson used to say, a human sitting on heaven's throne. <laughs> we are thankful for that promise and the earnest money for that promise. We are thankful for your glory, for we find actually our worth and value even in your glory. And we're thankful, Lord, for the encouragement that you have given us that you are at work by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray along with the writers of Scripture, along with these early Christians, that you would come quickly, that you would return and make all things new. That is where our hope is located. We pray all of this in the name of the risen Christ. Amen.